Sermon Podcast. Is your life important? What about others? Are their lives important to you? Today, Senior Pastor Heath Bauer helps us see that all life is important in the eyes of a holy God. We definitely live in a culture that minimizes the value of life and likes to redefine terms to fit opinions. One thing we can rest in knowing is that all life, regardless of opinion, has great value. If you're in the Ashland or Tri-State area, we would love to see you. More information on how you can connect with us at Unity will follow today's talk. Here's Heath with today's message, The Silent Cry. I'll open to the middle there to Psalm 139. This is Sanctity of Life Sunday, and if you're wondering where that came from, you can thank the Gipper, Ronald Reagan, uh, 11 years on the anniversary of Roe v. Wade. He established a Sanctity of Life Day, a Sanctity of Life Sunday. And that's because he himself couldn't overturn abortion by himself, and all you could do is draw attention to it, because legislation doesn't change in America until the hearts of the American people change. Abortion exists because the, mo- the majority of Americans support it. When we believe in something, we can lobby, we can vote, we can post things on social media. You could be one of those people picketing out there for, for a cause that you believe in. But let me ask you something. What can a baby do? A baby's only defense is its cuteness. A baby's only defense is the integrity of the people that are looking out for the babies. And that's us. And when the people who are called to look out for the babies don't do so, it's, it's horrifying. Even when we see it in nature. I was watching a documentary the other day on storks. You know, storks, the, the animal that we kind of associate with familial love and tenderness toward babies, uh, the bird that Hans Christian Andersen taught us delivers babies to deserving parents, the stork. And so I'm watching this documentary fully expecting to see this affectionate, tender mother with her babies, and, and in some ways she was. Uh, but then as I'm watching this stork in this nest, I see the mother, she's picking on the littlest one. And she'll just kind of grab him unceremoniously by the neck skin and just kind of pick him up and just toss him to the side of the nest. And he tries to scramble back in with the birds and she tosses him to the side of the nest again. And eventually you see see her pick him up with her beak by the neck skin and just fling this baby bird out of the nest to its death. And I was just, it's still, can you tell it's really, it made an impression on me. It still horrifies me that this bird, which I associate with familial love and kindness, would just grab one of the babies and chuck it out of the nest. And don't get all David Attenborough on me. I know that animals do this kind of thing for the survival of the species and and such like that. And she was getting rid of the, the smallest one that had the least chance to survive so that she could help the other ones have a greater chance to survive. But that's storks. And it's horrifying enough to see a stork do it. What about when people, what about when fathers and mothers who are supposed to love their child toss them out of the nest, if you will? The lack of love that a family has for one another, not the least of which, the lack of love that a mother or father might have for their own child, friends, is an indicator of the last days. It really is. Paul was talking to Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 begins this way. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. And then he describes what people will be like in the last days. See if you don't recognize a little bit about our nation here. 
For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents. That's right, parents, disobedient teenagers are a sign of the apocalypse. Ungrateful, unholy, and here's the word I want you to focus on, unloving. Now, as we read that in the English, it appears rather unremarkable, unloving, because in the English language, we just have the one word for love. Now, you know that in the Greek, there's several different words for love. We're familiar with probably the most popular of the three Greek words in the Bible. Uh, We're familiar with phileo love, like Philadelphia, brotherly love. We're familiar with uh, eros love, which is sensual love. We're familiar with agape love, which is unconditional love. But there's a fourth Greek word in the Bible for love, and it's right here in this passage here, and it's storge love. It's familial love. It's natural love that family has for one another, husband for wife, parents for children, and in an ideal world, children for one another. It's, it's familial love. It's natural Love And it's only represented in the Bible in this negative form. You see, this word storge here is translated here unloving is a storge. You have the prefix a in front of it. Even in the English, when we put an a in front of something, it negates it, doesn't it? An a theist is someone who's not a theist. Something that is something that is amoral. It's not a moral thing. And so when we talk about someone who is a storge, that's... The word here in 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 3, astorgos is referring to something that is, the King James renders it, without natural affection. Without the affection that a mother would naturally have for her child. That's a sign that we are entering into last days. This is, a, this is a bad thing. This is a negative thing. And unfortunately, America is increasingly astorgos. We're increasingly without natural affection. That, that husbands can be abusive to their wives and parents can take the life of their child because they want to do more international travel. The child is an inconvenience to me. And so we don't want children, and if somehow through procreative acts children come about, we want to wipe them out and remove them from our home. That's a sign of last days. You know, a study was done from just in America, from Roe v. Wade up until 2017 when this study was done, they discovered that America has killed 63 million children. That would be like America pushing the nuke button on and sending hundreds of nukes to in one fell swoop destroy the country of Italy and to destroy the country of Sicily. All in one, all in one spot, we just wiped these countries off the mat. That's how many we killed from then to 20, just to 2017. Don't think abortion stopped between 2017 and now. Do not think that the silent cries of these children that we have murdered have not, have escaped our father's ears. Do babies have intrinsic value? When do babies actually become alive? And does God have a plan for these babies? Psalm 139 answers all of these questions. And we're going to look at Psalm 139. Psalms, uh, you go to the book of Psalms a lot of times when we want to see just raw emotion of man proclaiming something to God because the Psalms were a songbook. They would, they would sing these things and they would, they would sing praises to God. Uh, Psalm 139 is one of my favorite Psalms because it's one of the most theological Psalms out there. When you want to discover what God is like, you go to Psalm 139. You, in Psalm 139, you can read about the, the omniscience of God that he is all-knowing. You can read about God's omnipresence. Where shall I go from your presence? 
If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. Okay? That's Psalm 139. And even in our text here today, talking about the eternality of God, God uses the occasion of the, the development of a human life to talk about his eternality and his plans for mankind. And so we're going to look at Psalm 139 as it relates to the abortion issue. Now, before we fully get into this text and we start talking more and more about abortion, I want to acknowledge that this is a very sensitive subject. You know, I know it's been unfortunately made a very much a political issue, but let's acknowledge this. Is abortion a political issue primarily? It is not. It is a moral issue. And God has spoken to that issue. And so when we speak on abortion, we're not being political primarily. We're being moral. We're trying to see, has God spoken on this issue? I also want to recognize it's a sensitive issue because it's affected some of us in here possibly. It may be that some of us, when we were younger, we made the decision to end the life of our baby. And, some, and just hearing something like this is going to bring up some painful memories. I acknowledge that. Some of you have gone through that and you have repented, and it still is a scar on your heart that brings up painful and difficult memories. We're not trying to make it more difficult on you. When you call out to God, can God even forgive the sin of abortion? He can. First John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, what will God do? He is faithful and just. Even if we're not faithful, God is faithful to do what? Forgive us from all unrighteousness and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God doesn't just forgive and say that I'm not gonna hold this against you. God will cleanse us, he says, from this sin. It's the Greek word katharizo. You have a catharsis. You're removing just negative emotional energies from your soul. You're just removing these, these, these awful feelings and you're having a catharsis. Or we know the word catheter. It re, it physically, it removes uh, filthy negative things from us. God says that when we confess our sins, including abortion, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us that God can remove the stain of an abortion from our record. Such is the God that we serve. Let's bear that in mind as we read Psalm 139. Psalm 139, why don't we murder babies? Number one, babies are created by God. To say that men and women create babies makes about as much sense as saying I created my own teeth. I didn't do that, did I? I received my teeth from God. God created this body, and there are certain natural processes that take place, and I received my teeth. In the same way, humans may engage in procreative activities, but make no mistake about it, God is the one who creates that baby. He created the human body. He created it to function a certain way. In fact, uh, Genesis chapter 30, who is it that opened up Rachel's womb? God. It says God made her have that baby. Read in Genesis chapter 22, read about the whole household of Abimelech. God says he closed the wombs of all the women in the household of Abimelech. And so humans may engage in procreative activities, but who is it that actually is making that baby? It's God. Babies are creation of God. And that's important to remember as we move on here. God creates life, and that has several implications to it. We'll look at three. A, because God created us and created our babies, these babies actually belong to God. How does the psalmist begin our text here in verse 13? He says, for you formed my inward hearts. David is making a statement here. God formed my inward parts. 
This word form means to create, to erect, to bring into being, and therefore having possession of. In fact, if you're reading a King James Bible today, you will see the word God possessed. Okay? Both ideas are in play here. That which you create, you have possession of. When you make something, you can decide what to do with it. And so uh, in Genesis 14, God is defined as the creator and therefore possessor of heaven and earth. And so David is acknowledging that God formed him. God made him. And therefore, God is the possessor of David. God owns David because God made him. Even his inward parts, he says, his organs, while he's in the womb, David is talking about his organs that God himself is fashioning together in the womb of the mother. You know, most women discover that they are pregnant somewhere in the four to seven week range of, of being pregnant. And if it's toward the latter end of that range, there's a lot that's already developed in our child, isn't there, even at seven weeks. You know, you've got the baby, they have a brain, they have a spinal cord, they have a heartbeat, they have blood cells, they have a circulatory system, their bones are replacing the cartilage that is there. This baby, even, even toward the end of that, it, even their, uh, their reproductive organs are beginning to develop, and we can discover on an ultrasound, are you having a boy or are you having a girl? Psalm 139.13 says, God is the one that's forming those inward parts. He makes our baby. And when you make something, it belongs to you, doesn't it? You have the power to do with it as you wish. God recognized this even in Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9 specifically is talking about uh, God's sovereign election in salvation. But in so doing, God actually makes a statement about the human body being formed by him. And therefore, he owns it and can do with it what he wishes. He says, will the, what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? God is just acknowledging this, that when you're a potter and you make a piece of pottery, you have an idea of what it's going to look like. You make it what you want it to be, and then you use it how you want to use it. You have that right as the potter. And God says, I am the potter of your bodies. I get to decide what is done with that body. You know, we understand this when we were kids. Uh, I've made pottery before, uh, all the way back to being a little kid. Back in the 1980s, every art teacher everywhere came to the, some conclusion that every mother and father for Christmas wants an ashtray. Y'all do that? You ever make an ashtray for your parents? I, we made them, you made them, we all made them. It's because back in, in the 1980s, everybody smoked. I mean, good night. Andy Griffith smoked. Your kindergarten teacher smoked. Your pastor smoked, probably. You know, it's just, it's just what people did back then. Emphysema was just a sign of aging. And so everybody had to make these ashtrays. Well, the thing is, my parents didn't smoke. So I decided I'm going to repurpose this ashtray, and I'm going to use it to collect coins on my headboard. You find coins on the ground. You turn in a pop can back then. You get coins. And I used it for that. What gives me the right to do that? It's the fact that I was the potter of this pot. I can decide to use it for coins. And when my purposes are done and I get a couple years older and I look back and I say, wow, that's really embarrassing. I'm going to throw it in the trash. I can do that, right? Because I am the potter. I decide to give, if you will, this pot life and I can choose when to take this pot's life. I can end it. God does the same thing. Deuteronomy 32, 39 says, there is no God besides me. I put to death and I bring to life. We don't get to decide when to take a life because we certainly can't be the one to give it either. 
In fact, we have a word for that. When we steal God's power to take life when we choose, we have a term for that. It's called murder. When we choose to end a life prematurely because uh, we've decided this life is not worth having, when it isn't a God-sanctioned death, you know, be it capital punishment or war or something, when it's just us and I don't like this life and I want to end it, it's murder, even when it's that of a baby. Abortion is just a polite way. In polite company, we speak of baby murder as abortion because baby murder just sounds really bad, doesn't it? Well, this is a problem. There's another implication from this that God created our babies. Therefore, babies are distinct in identity from their mother. We're going to look at verse 13 here. Look what he says. You wove me in my mother's womb. I just want you to notice here, when, when he says weaving here, this is just beautiful. It's a word that literally means to entwine. Picture somebody knitting something. I don't know if you have any knitters out here, any crocheting type people. Uh, you take this yarn and you're knitting, you're entwining these things carefully. And when you do that, you're not doing it willy-nilly. You're not just like, here's a bunch of yarn. I think I'm just going to kind of do this. You know, I've seen it on TV and we're just going to, whatever happens, happens. You have something in mind, like your grandmother. She loves you, and she knows that we're not too smart, and we go outside when it's cold and we don't wear a hat, so what does grandma do? She knits us a stocking cap. And when she does that, she does it because she loves us, and she wants to bless us, and so she takes of her own material and her own resources, and she begins to slowly, thread by thread, knit this hat together. That's what the Bible is saying God does when he makes us in the womb, that God has a plan, and he has a desire to bless some mother and father with this baby, and he is knitting carefully every cell together in this baby's body, much like a grandmother knitting a stocking cap for someone that she loves. Imagine then going to grandma, she's got this stocking cap just about finished, and you rip this out of her hands, you take her throwing needles, you throw it on the ground, and you shred the stocking cap right in front of her, you throw it on the ground, you scoop it up, and you throw it in the trash. Friends, that's what abortion is. That's what abortion is. We are taking the blessing of God, something that God is intricately and carefully weaving together, and we are tearing this child apart, and we throw them in a dumpster. Those are hard words to say but it's true. What I want you to notice in this verse is this. When David speaks these words and he says, you wove me in my mother's womb, I want you to see something. In this verse, what part belongs to the mother? It's the womb. He'd, it, the possessive is the womb belongs to the mom. But the body that is being woven together by God, who does that belong to? You wove me. David is talking about himself as a separate identity. This thing being woven together in the womb, the womb belongs to the mom, but this, you're gonna see several times this passage, David is going to talk about himself in his mother's body in a possessive adjective. My, my, this is me. This child, even though unformed, is still me. I have identity. I have possession of my body. And this is important to say here today because a big part of the abortion argument rests on this. While a baby is inside the mother, is it just simply um, part of the mother? Or is this child a separate identity? If it's just part of the mother, then you can clip this baby out and throw it in the trash, and it has no more moral significance than clipping your toenails. 
But if this child is a separate identity, a separate life, a separate being, distinct from the mother's body, then friends, we don't have a right to take that life. It's no longer health care. Abortion is not health care. Abortion is the taking of a life that doesn't belong to you, this life that God has created and a life that belongs to God. In fact, God identifies this even elsewhere in the Mosaic Law, Exodus chapter 21, verse 22 to 23. It says, when men strive together, sometimes men, they just get into it, that testosterone, and they get into a fight, and what's the wife gonna do? She's gonna wanna intervene, right, and separate. She doesn't wanna see her husband get beat down. And so this wife may intervene while pregnant. And it says here in verse 22, when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, causes a premature delivery or a miscarriage possibly. He says, if there's no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined. There's still a penalty. It's wrong to hit a woman and cause her to deliver prematurely. But look at this, verse 23, but if there is harm, then you shall pay in what fashion? Life for life. Does God, codified within his law, does God value the life of the unborn as much as he does your life? That a man can be executed for striking a pregnant woman, causing her to deliver and to lose this child. Does God value life just as much as any adult? It's right here in our Bible. There's a third implication here. See, God made our baby, therefore what? Our babies have value. You know, you know, country is starting to really get away from God when you actually have to teach this. Years ago, the baby was the highest joy of a person's life. It was the greatest longing, the greatest desire. It was actually considered a curse if you couldn't have a baby because babies were, were part of your essential functioning of society. The babies represented your future. The babies represented a thing of great joy. The, the children, the Bible says, are an inheritance from the Lord. This is something you receive as a benefit from God. It used to be you wouldn't have to teach that babies had value. People just intrinsically knew babies have value, but now you have to say that. Babies have value because God made, him, made them. Look how David views his body while it's being formed in the mother's womb. Contemplating all this, he says, I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. Fearfully made. David, in the contemplation of the formation of his body inside a mother's womb, he has overcome. And he describes the formation of himself as something that is fearfully made. It's a word that means, uh, that implies the fear of God, a reverence of God, that when he contemplates his body, David has no, no option to consider himself an atheist. Just the development of the human and its life cycle, he feels is sufficient evidence to believe that there is a creator God. There's, there's too much intricate stuff going on as God is knitting us together. Now, if you wanna believe that we're all a, a cosmic accident, you have to go to Harvard and you have to have professionals brainwash you to believe that God doesn't exist, that nothing created something, that life came from unlife, that we ignored every law in science, every law of thermodynamics, we have to ignore the law of entropy and say rather than all matter is breaking down, that all matter went from a disorganized state to an organized state, from a single-celled organism to a, to a worm or something, to a fish, to a lizard, to a bird, to a mammal, to some ape, and eventually to us. You have to be brainwashed to believe that kind of nonsense. David says the natural contemplation of the development of the human body is 
I am fearfully made. He has this reverence of God, this belief in God because of the making of the human body. It leads him to say that we are wonderfully made, that David is filled with awe and wonder about who God is because of the process and the formation of the human body. Interesting too, this word wonderful is a word that means separate and distinct. It's different. We are distinctly separated from nature and that gives us inherent worth. We, I know we get taught that physiologically you might be able to identify us as a mammal. Friends, we're not mammals per se. We weren't made on the same day that God made dogs, on the same day that God made cats. We were made on a separate and distinct day. And what did God say? Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our image. God didn't say let us make chimpanzees in our image, nor elephants in our image, nor tuna in our image, God says, let's make man in our image. David, recognizing this, recognizes the unique position that humans hold. We are not simply animals. We're not invaders on this earth. This earth and all that was here, God actually put here for us. Even the animals that were here are put here for us. We don't simply share a planet with animals. These animals were made for us. And if I can go even further, these animals were even made for food. I mean, Acts chapter 10, before Peter went to Cornelius, God had to give him a vision, this sheet from heaven with all these animals. You remember this, Sunday school, years ago? This, all these animals and these sheep from heaven, God brought it down as a picture of how we should love the Gentiles, but then God said, specifically, he's removing this component of the Jewish law of these dietary codes. And he said, in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him saying, rise, Peter, kill and eat. When God delivers you brisket on a blanket, you just say, thank you. You know, yes, Virginia, you can eat something that has a face because it's not like humans. We are not on the same. Science tries to say that there's no fundamental value in the human life relative to the life of an ape or the life of a lizard or a dog, that we have equal value, but not in God's eyes. Jesus didn't die for chimpanzees. Jesus died for humans that were made in his image. And the animal, the Bible says when God created man and woman, he, he sent us out there to, to uh, subdue the earth, that it was all here for us as we glorify God. And it, and it glorified God that we utilize these things. God says here that you can eat an animal. God does never say anywhere in the Bible that you can eat a human. Why? because humans are made in the image of God. You have intrinsic value, just the nature of who you are, which I think is just something to remind ourselves even this morning. We have, we have a lot of folks in America that the further we get away from God, the further we get away from our creator, we begin to lose our sense of worth and identity in him because our worth and identity is wrapped up in God. When you get away from God, you lose your worth and you lose your identity and pretty soon we have depressed people you heard it here first. When you, the further you get away from God, the more depressed you're going to become because your life has no significance, no meaning, and no value outside of God. You're not gonna find it out there in the world. You're not gonna find meaning and value. You're not gonna find it in money. You're not gonna find it in women or men. You're not gonna find it in any kind of thing that you build. Our significance only comes from him. In fact, uh, as a Christian, we have even more significance and value, if you will. Uh, the Bible tells us in Ephesians 2 that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. It has one of my favorite Greek words in the entire New Testament, that we are his workmanship. We've said it here before. Here's his poema. We get the word poem. 
It was his workmanship. Your workmanship is something that you've done that reflects on the person who made it. In those days, if you wanted to say, I want to go into business to make swords for the military, you weren't allowed just to make any old sword. The guy gets out there and uses this, you know, junky sword and it breaks in half and the guy gets killed on the field of battle. So you had to apprentice under somebody for a while and you would apprentice under him, you'd learn how to make swords, you'd banging at the anvil with the hammer for many hours before they allow you to go from apprentice to journeyman to a master artisan and now you can make swords and go into business for yourself. But once you went through that process of, of apprenticing, eventually you would have sort of a final quiz, sort of a dissertation, if you will. And what you would do is you would make this, let's just say sword, and you would make this thing to show what you're capable of doing. I'm able to make quality materials. I'm able to go out on my own, start my own business. And you would make this piece, this workmanship, that, that allows you to go from journeyman to a master and they would call it a masterpiece. And you would take this masterpiece and you would, if you will, hang it up over your door next to your business shingle and people could come by and say, well, let's see what kind of craftsmanship we have here. And they would look at this piece and they would discover something about the master who made it, communicated something about him, it glorified him. This is the term that the Bible is using for us with God, that in Christ Jesus, we are a masterpiece of God. His workmanship created unto good works that when men, Matthew 5, 16, see our good works, they'll glorify our Father who's in heaven. We are the temple of God. We are his body. If people want to see what God is like, God put Christians here on earth, real, true, converted Christians, that when you look at their life and they look a lot like God, it communicates a little bit about what God is like. And because of that, we have intrinsic value. So friends, if you're sad today, you're depressed today, you're self-deprecating, you hate yourself, you hate your body, you hate something about yourself, uh, just remember this. Because you were created in the image of God, you have value. Whether you're a baby or an adult, and God has a plan for you. See number two here, that babies are alive even when unformed. The truest debate and the argument upon which the entire abortion discussion hangs is this. When does life begin? When does life begin? Uh, the darker that a culture becomes, the later this date becomes. You know what I mean? Uh, the later you can have this abortion, the later you try to push off when that life has any significance, meaning, and value. In fact, you can go to several states in our union today who will say that a baby has no significance, no life, and no value all the way up to the last day of pregnancy. You can go to places like Oregon, Colorado, New Jersey, you know, bastions of morality in America. You can go to states like that, and there's no point of the pregnancy where you can't terminate this life and destroy grandma's stocking cap. And, that, and let's, not be, let's, not, let's not try to soften it either. Abortions aren't nice, neat, pretty little things. I'm not going to be graphic, but when, I'm not going to show pictures or anything like that, but consider this. When we have abortion, it's, just, it's not just like babies disappear into the ether. This child has to be dismembered and sucked out with a shop vac. That's repugnant. And if you're more offended that I use those terms than the fact that it's actually, friends, we have a problem. The bigger issue is this is happening. I think back to World War II, and I've seen documentaries where the Germans, they're living in their houses, they're living comfortably, they're living happy lives. They see smoke rising in the distance, and every German family knows what that smoke is comprised of, of human flesh. 
And after the war, the people of Germany were forced to go into these concentration camps and to witness what was taking place. You had to witness the dead bodies. You had to witness the stench. You had to hold your nose. In tears, you had to go through the gas chambers. You had to walk through these camps. You had to see what was going on because for the longest time, we were way back far from this and we could see the smoke rising in the distance, but it didn't feel that bad because we weren't up close to it. And to some degree, I think that's where we are with abortion. We see the smoke rising in the distance. We know what's going on, but we don't want to talk about the horrific way that this is taking place and the great numbers in which this has taken place. And to some degree, Christians, we have to get our face right up in there to understand just how heinous and just how wicked this act is taking place right here on our own borders. This is our very own Holocaust. We see the smoke, but are we moved in our hearts to investigate? I would argue that we need to investigate. Well, babies are alive when unformed. Verse 15, he says, my frame, he's talking about his body, my frame was not hidden from you. I might be inside a mother's belly. You can't, people can't see it, God, but you can. When I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth, your eyes have seen my unformed substance. And so he's talking about the baby, that when he was created, it was secretly created. His body remains hidden from man for the longest time. And so even though in abortion clinics, you're trying to sneak off to some secluded private place where nobody knows, and in some places, even your own mama doesn't have to know what you're doing, and you may feel like you're doing something privately, but with this baby that's inside your womb, who still sees that baby? Our text here says, God, you see me. God still sees what we're doing. People may not know. You may keep this a secret from everybody, including your boyfriend. God still sees, and God still knows. He says, when I was made in secret and wrought in the depths of the earth, your eyes have seen. Wrought is a term, again, uh, describes a painstaking work of embroidery or needlepoint, that you're following this pattern, and it's just this very delicate thing that you're doing with a needle and thread. He's, he's saying that's the kind of personal involvement God has in the formation of a human child inside the womb. He is following this pattern. He says, while in the depths of the earth, it's a metaphor for the mother's womb, God's eyes have seen what? My unformed substance. I think this is fascinating. This word unformed substance, it's the Hebrew word golem or English word golem. This golem is inside. When I am yet unformed, I don't, even, I don't even look like a person yet. I love that the Bible uses this. It's almost like God centuries and, and millennia ago knew that we were gonna face this and needed specific terminology like this. I've got a picture of a golem here. Can we throw that picture on the screen here? Uh, it's a picture of this baby in development all the way over to the left. I mean, right now, all the way to the left, you can't quite tell, is this going to be a dog, a lizard, or a human? This is a golem. This is an unformed substance, even when we're just this little blob of flesh, when we're just this uh, assortment of chemicals, when we're just this clump of cells, this embryo. Bible says God saw us. Not only that, but I want you to see what the Bible says about that. He's, again, we're speaking in possessive terms. You saw my unformed substance. So this unformed substance, this golem, this thing that we can't even tell what it is yet, 
okay? It doesn't have bodily organs. It may not even have totally implanted. It may not have a heartbeat yet. And even in this unformed state, what does the Bible acknowledge? This unformed substance, God sees it, it possesses life, and it belongs to David. This is not just a clump of cells. This is a person. That's what the Bible is telling us here. In this undeveloped state, is David alive? Absolutely he's alive, because it used to be that we could say that life begins at conception. Okay, without getting into too much detail, when, when the different parts come together and they form this, this embryo, this, this fully fertilized egg, we used to be able to just say, at conception, life begins. Do you know that we actually, as Christians, we're gonna have to back up our language a little bit? And it goes back years ago. Uh, a familiar resource for many in the medical field is Stedman's Medical Dictionary. And prior to the year 2000, it would define conception as fertilization. Do you know that in the 26th edition of Stedman's Medical Dictionary, in the year 2000, they changed that definition? They changed the definition to conception is now implantation. That can be sometimes up to two weeks after the fertilization of that baby. Why did we all of a sudden change? Did biology change? Did we just learn something new about biology? No, it's that we want permission to kill our babies a little bit later in, in the process. That this baby prior to two weeks isn't even alive. So if you wanna go ahead and take that, take that after whatever pill and you just wanna nuke your child before implantation, don't worry. It wasn't actually a human life. Such is not the case from Psalm 139. When we were yet an unformed substance, simply these, these cells that have come together, the Bible says, God, you saw this, and this was my unformed substance. You know, we understand it when it's an eagle, don't we? If you, kill it, if you crush an eagle egg, you go out there, and you're just one of these like prankster kids, and you want to break a bald eagle egg, are there consequences for that? you can be fined up to $100,000 or a year in jail or both if you are found to destroy an eagle egg. Why? It's because we understand that this eagle in its golem stage, in this clump of cell stage, is still an eagle. You're destroying, when you destroy this clump of cells, you're still destroying eagle life. Why do we have penalties for this? It's because we value the life of an eagle. It's our national bird. But when we allow people to destroy human life in the golem state in the womb, and we have no penalty whatsoever, in fact, we say it's legal. In fact, we say we'll use government tax dollars to pay for these sometimes. What does that say about Americans' value of human life? It says we're living in a post-Christian America. We do not value the life which God has given. And it's because we don't value God. We've been completely duped by Satan. When God created man and woman, Genesis 1:28, God created Adam and Eve, what was the first and initial command for this couple? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Can we not say that that was God's original intention for mankind? Male and female, he created them. What does Satan want to do? He wants to flip it and say, there isn't male and female. In fact, there's lots of different genders and you can pick what you want. Call yourself they, them, ze, zang, zip. Whatever you want for your pronouns, you can do that. We can, he wants to oppose the work of God, which is not surprising. Satan in the, in the Hebrew means adversary. He's the opponent. Whatever God wants, Satan wants the opposite. 
And so if God wants the natural order of human couples is to have babies, to be fruitful, and to multiply, and to fill the earth, when we do the opposite of that, we are joining, we are putting on Satan's jersey, and we are helping him to oppose the very work of God. God is glorified. When we have these children, no, it's not your only purpose, but when we have these children and we raise these children up to worship God, this is part of God's initial plan going all the way back to the garden. Satan is the one who wants to oppose that. If you remember in John 10, 10, Jesus said Satan's goal is to steal, to kill, and destroy. John 8, 44, Jesus said Satan was a murderer from the beginning. When we take human life, friends, that isn't joining God's side that isn't just health care for the mother. We are opposing the very work of God and his plan. Number three, God has a plan for every baby. He says in verse 16, in your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. What is this book we're talking about? This book is it's just an average Hebrew term for a ledger of some kind, some kind of record. It's something, you have a ledger and a record when you want to keep track of something, when you want to plan for something, you have this kind of a book that's described. And so metaphorically, the Bible's talking about God's omniscience, his omnipotence and his sovereignty that God has, if you will, every time at fertilization, okay, we can't just say conception now, right? Fertilization, God has at that moment a ledger for that child a book, a plan, an intention. He describes these as days that were formed for me. This word formed, it means shaped, devised according to a plan. It's a term that you would use of, once again, a potter and its clay. I have an idea. I have something in my head. I'm going to work it out in clay, and it's going to suit. I have plans for this. There's things I'm going to do with this pot when I get it home. I'm going to put coins in it, or ashes, whatever you want. You, just, you have a plan for this pot. You don't just make a pot for no reason. This pot is going to serve a purpose, even if just to be beautiful and decorative on the shelf. That's still a plan. And the Bible says such a plan in the formation of a child is in play at the moment that you are born. And even before this child is born, it says that God has the days formed for us when as yet there was none of them. That God handpicks our days before we're even born. And so God has a plan for every human life. You know, often arguments are made, though, that uh, humans sometimes have a better plan than God has. So before this child is born, uh, before they even had a single day of life, his, his days have plans. God has intentions and plans for this child. And we can try to cut that short through abortion because humans have a better plan. We look at this child, we look at the circumstances, we look at the parents, and we say, you know what? This child, they might be born into poverty. They might be born into suffering and difficulty. This child, anymore, it's really popular to tell children that their uh, parents, that their children might have some kind of disability in hopes that maybe you'll abort your child. You say, well, that, that kind of stuff only happens in other countries like China. And, no, it, it happens here too. And you're told that this person has a disability, so you might want to think about the quality of the life of the child. Well, let me ask you this, parents. Maybe your child will be born with a disability. By the way, not always. I can't tell you how many parents have been told the child's going to be born with some kind of heart defect and they're born perfectly healthy. But let's just say theoretically that your child is going to be born with some kind of disability or that you know your child's going to be born in a difficult time of life. I would never bring children into this world. 
Or maybe theoretically, you're, you're, they're gonna be born and you know this child's gonna be born into a period of suffering or poverty. Do you still bring this child into the world? Yes. It's because God's plan, does God's plan sometimes include suffering for us? Does your life have suffering? Does, is God's intention for humankind just to give us very uh, easy, comfortable, uh, enjoyable lives until eventually we die and we go to heaven? Is that, is that God's intention for us? Sometimes God has suffering for us, doesn't he? You might be born short like Zacchaeus. We learned in Sunday school, he was a wee little man, right? Short little guy. Did he do okay in life? He was the chief tax collector. He did well financially. Moreover, he met Jesus. Or you have people like Job, who he lost everything. I mean, the man lost all his kids and all his livestock. He lost his reputation. He lost his health. The only thing God let him keep was his wife. No comment. And there's others who suffered greatly in the Bible. Joseph spent the best years of his life in slavery. Should Joseph have ever been born? Through Joseph, God saved the entire world from a famine. Or what about in John 9, when there was a man who was born blind, that it was God's intention for this child to be born without eyesight, and to enter this world into darkness, and to live out the majority of his days in darkness, that is, until Jesus came, and the disciples asked, why was this man born blind? What did Jesus tell him? For this purpose, why? It's to glorify God. It's for this hour. That sometimes God has an intention for the pain and suffering even of our children. And I know as parents, our greatest longing is to give them a comfortable life, an easy life, a life with no conflict, no difficulty. We call them lawnmower parents. They mow down everything in the child's past so the child's just skipping throughout life and never having any kind of difficulty. That was never God's intention for our children because God uses difficulty and pain and suffering in life to form us into what we are today. Look at your own life. I won't ask for a show of hands, but how many of you have been most radically shaped and altered by the painful events of your life? Sometimes those events leading you to God himself. And yet, are those not the very things that we're trying to make our child avoid? Avoid the very things that God uses, pain, suffering, difficulty, to form them and shape them. And so no, this quality of life argument is a human discussion. It's not a God discussion. Your quality of life has nothing to do with what you are here on the money you make, whether you're good looking, tall, short. What makes your life significant is one singular thing. Do you know Jesus Christ? Has he forgiven your sins? Are you forgiven? Will you spend eternity in heaven? If so, friends, you might be living in squalor and poverty. I grew up in poverty. You might be a child of rape. You may not know who your father is. Can you still have a quality life? You absolutely can has nothing to do uh, with uh, this quality of life issue has nothing to do with the sanctity of human life because even if you were you grew up in the most difficult of circumstances your life can have meaning if you're here you're poor and you're struggling and you've always been down and out you might be a Siamese twins any Siamese twins here today does God have a plan for Siamese twins he does and can you live a meaningful and significant life you can if it's united to Christ And that has nothing to do with the status of our child. And so it's not the job of humans to decide who lives and dies and to have quality of life discussions because God has a plan for every human life. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, specifically, handpicked for me. 
when as yet there was none of them. We've come to the end of this message here. What do you do at the end of an abortion message? You know, you always have to ask yourself the question after you get done preaching, so what? So you've preached these propositional truths over here. What do we do now? What do we do about this? Faith without works is what? Is dead, the Bible says. So do you have faith to believe that every human life is valuable? I hope so, because it's right here in the Bible. Do you have faith enough to believe that God has a plan for these children, that God loves the little children, that God has formed these children, that these children belong to God, and that it's not the position of humans to take that life, and that it's not even our job to take that life when it's a golem, when it's this unformed substance. Do you believe that to be true? Faith without works is dead. Well, what can we do? I mean, what do we, as a church, do we go out and we form picket lines? You know, do we stand in front of the Capitol building? Is that the best use of our time? Do we just post the occasional, you know, thing on social media about, you know, with, with some unborn baby and say, you know, God loves babies, protect babies? I think these things are all well and good. What is the most powerful thing we can do to protect the life of the babies? Remember, a baby's only self-defense is the integrity of the people who are looking after them. What's the most powerful thing we can do to protect innocent baby lives? Why is abortion legal to begin with? It's because our laws allow it. How do we reverse this? It's with our vote. No, friends, I'm not gonna get strongly political, but I am gonna, because remember, this isn't a political issue, it's a moral issue. In this pulpit, I'm never, going to tell, I'm never going to advocate for a candidate. I'm never going to tell you you have to be one party or the other to be right with God. The truth is, every human party has weaknesses because they're made up of sinful men and women. You're rarely going to vote in a Sunday school teacher. You're very rarely going to vote in a pastor to Americans' highest position. But what can we do, friends? We can, we can protect the lives of innocent children with our vote. For me personally... I'm just speaking personally here at this point. I will not vote in a candidate who does not protect human life. I will be a one-issue can, uh, voter until this issue is removed, this blight is removed from our country. See, that's pretty narrow. There's a lot of other issues to consider. You know, how do they deal with immigration? What about the economy? What about this? What about that? How can you still be a one-issue voter? Friends, I would argue you're already a one-issue voter in a lot of other areas of life. Ladies, you're looking to date a guy, okay? Those of you ladies who are looking for a guy. Uh, you find a guy, he's good looking, he's wealthy, he's funny, your parents love him. One problem, he's running from the law for mass murder. He's a serial killer. Do you date this fellow? Do you marry this fellow? Why not? You have eliminated this guy on the basis of one thing. He has all these good things going for him, but he's, he just happens to be a serial killer. What is your deal, Becca? Becca won't marry a serial killer. You're eliminating them for one single issue. Why? Because that one issue is far too great to ignore. It doesn't matter how good you are in these other things if you kill people. Parents, you're looking for somebody to watch your kids. You want to go out on a date. You want to have fun. You want to know that your kids are being well cared for at home. You find somebody, they have all kinds of, uh, they have this great resume. They've been babysitting trained. They've been trained in CPR. They bring their own books to read to your children. They play Mozart. But he did get out of jail for uh, being a pedophile. Do you allow this man to watch your children? 
You would not. You have become a one-issue voter. You have ignored all of these lovely benefits that this man brings to the table on the basis of a single issue, and you're getting rid of them for this one issue. Why? It's because the issue is too big to ignore. Friends, I would argue that on the issue of abortion, this is, a, this is an issue that trumps other issues. Until this issue is dealt with in our nation, this is a blight upon our nation, and we cannot expect that God is going to ignore the silent cries of our children that rise to him every year. We ask God to God bless America, God bless our economy, God help us in war, God help me here, God help us there as a nation, but we're still killing the children and the gifts that he gives us. And so no, I'm a one issue voter here. I will not, if you do not oppose abortion, I'm voting for the other guy. I don't care what party you are. If you don't protect human life, I'm gonna vote for the other guy. I'm gonna find someone who does care about human life. Why, why is it such a big deal? Because hopefully you've seen from Psalm 39, it's a big deal to God. When God speaks to a moral issue, we don't get to debate it. We can debate wars, whether or not they're ethical or not. We can debate uh, economic policies. You can debate uh, socialist type policies and welfare. You can debate those all day long. But the areas that where a Christian is not allowed to make it a political debate are areas where God has spoken. And on the abortion subject, friends, has God spoken? He has spoken definitively. God is pro-life. The question is, are we going to vote pro-life? Or are we just going to continue to vote the way we've always voted because I did it, and my parents did it, and my mamaw and papaw did it, and their mamaw and papaw before them did it, and that's just how we're going to vote. Friends, That we're not in that kind of place anymore. These parties are not the same as they were when they were once created. We've got to critically evaluate not simply the name of the party over the door and what name badge we want to wear. We've got to evaluate, do they uphold biblical morality or don't they? God has spoken, and he is pro-life. The question is, will we be? Let's close. Father, this is a tough message. I know that I'm not preaching to a room full of people who haven't been touched by this very issue. I know that as this message goes out over the airwaves, it's not going to a whole bunch of people who are already pro-life. God, I pray that your word, not my words, but that your word in Psalm 139 would do this singular thing to convince people that life is something that God, you give as a gift to us. It's not something, therefore, that we have the right to take and it pleases us. Lord, may we have the courage to stand up for these children who cannot speak out on their own, who cannot defend themselves. God, they're relying only on the integrity of these good people here to vote in people who represent biblical values. God, I pray that you'd give us the boldness to do such a thing. And God, we pray for the day when like slavery was abolished, that we will live to see the day when abortion is abolished, not just in one or two states, God, but that the blight will be entirely removed from our land. Lord, that we may open up the opportunity for you to bless us once again. Lord, we just commit this time to you and pray that our people here will find that our value of a human life is not in their poverty or their riches, not in their sickness or their health, but in the fact of whether or not they are united in life to Jesus Christ. God, if there are any here today, today who don't know you, I pray today would be the day that they find their significance and meaning, not in who they are, not in what they look like, not in their paycheck, not in their house, not in the car that they drive, but in the fact that they are related to you, a poema of God created unto good works. 
And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. From all of us here at Unity, we just want to say thanks for spending time with us today. If you'd like to know how to surrender your life to Christ, or if you'd like to share a response, visit us at www.unitybaptistashland.com. We would love the opportunity to help you in your next steps. You can also connect with us on Facebook at UBC Ashland. If you like what we're doing, don't forget to like and subscribe and share our podcast. Until next time, let us give thanks to the Lord, call upon His name, make known His deeds among the people. Thank you.